listen, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I have struggled with this weird complex in my life where I want to be really vulnerable, but I also want to hide as much as possible at the same time. You know what I'm saying? I want to be as good as I possibly can, but I am terrified of people actually knowing what's going on in here under the surface. Can anybody else relate, or is it just me? It's just me, as far as Michael knows. <laughs> when Haley and I first started dating, I remember I just wanted to tell her everything bad about me she could possibly know as soon as I could, so that if she was going to leave me eventually because I was phony, at least she had her opportunity right now. That, that's kind of how I started things off. Another example, um, I love to read, but uh, a lot of people have often read more books than me. And uh, I have, <laughs> unfortunately, there has been moments in my life where someone's been like, oh yeah, you know when Sp Pete Scazzaro said this in Emotionally Healthy Church? And I'm like, I love that book. All three chapters I've read, <laughs> don't ask me about the other nine, you know? Because I'm so scared of not being smart enough for people. I want to be smart enough to be accepted by others. I've got two more. Uh, I have been in circles where people are confessing things in their life, moments of sin that I too have struggled with. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. I've struggled with that as well, definitely. But just like, please don't ask me about it. I don't want to go all the way there. I want to be vulnerable. I want to tell you I've struggled with it, but I am so deathly afraid of you knowing that I am not spiritually mature enough to be able to keep my eyes from that, to do this, this, that, or the other. I think you get the point. And then I just have one more. I think I know more than I actually do. There you go. So <laughs> that's just the truth. Um, but as I've been studying Hebrews 4 this week, it's been a very healing balm to my soul, a lie that I've lived in for many of years. And my hope is that this sermon tonight, this message, is, is not <laughs> just about being incredibly articulate, but it's about fixing our eyes on Jesus and coming out of hiding, actually fully being known for who we are. I was supposed to do Hebrews 4 and 5, but the more I studied this, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is the moment right now that's for Genesis and the end of Hebrew in the end of Hebrews 4. So wherever Joelle is, she's gonna pick up my slack in a couple weeks and preach on all the things I was supposed to. But regardless, there's two moments in particular that I think are gonna really minister to us in this chapter. But my heart today is that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we really truly feel the freedom to come out of our hiding. We've all carried so much shame and guilt just trying to be good enough. But I'm praying tonight for a moment of encounter with the Lord that really lights up the dark places in our lives. So we could easily get through a moment where I could just preach facts. We could have some good ideas. But my hope tonight is that you have an encounter with the grace of God who does not need you to hide anything. You don't have to act like you're better than you are. You don't have to act like you're smarter than you are. You don't even have to act vulnerable, but not really want to be vulnerable. I did that for you. So I just ask you to open your heart, all right? Okay, so in Hebrews 4, uh, Brian preached on the first half of Hebrews 4 last week. And what I want to do is just give you a little bit of background of where we've been. I think it's just very helpful moving forward. Um, the Hebrews seem to be struggling in their faith a little bit. Apparently, they're the only people in the world who have ever seemed to be struggling in their faith a little bit. I'm kidding. 
Uh, many of them have doubts about who Jesus really is, why they should trust him. Many people are calling themselves Christians, but they're just not living like it at all. Maybe even others have some ideas or presuppositions about God that just aren't true. And then there's one more that seems very possible given the date of when Hebrews was written, that many of these Jews were, written, or were in diaspora, which is where these Jews had been kicked out of their land of Israel. And now they're wondering, is this Jesus really the guy who was supposed to save all of Israel, bring us back into our land? So whatever the case, and, and we can really only speculate given the conversations, is that the, the pastor of Hebrews is speaking to them in a moment of weakness, of honest struggle where he gives them truth to rectify their souls and hope to hang on to. He gives them strength to endure, beauty to allow their hearts to open to God once again, and then he gives them a picture of perfection to place their trust in right in the middle of their sufferings. So I imagine that all of us, in one way, shape, or form, could relate our current moment, be it personally or collectively, to that of the Hebrews, right? It's been a rough couple of years. COVID, we've all experienced the suffering of isolation. We've experienced the suffering of losing people really close to us. We've also experienced the sufferings of people really close to us being called not enough, being attacked, being killed because of the color of their skin abundantly in these last couple of years. And, and wrapped up in all of this, we have questions. God, what is going on? How could, how could you honestly let this happen? Is it just too big for you? Because if it is, how do I put my faith in you? Is any of this worth it? Or maybe in the isolation of the past while, you fell into just these habitual patterns of sin that you know they're not you, you know that, but they've wreaked this havoc on your soul and in the shame of it all, rather than just coming out and being honest, you've been afraid to bring it to God and you've just continued to hide. So I want to invite you tonight as we read the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 14, we'll start at just to consider Jesus once again like Dan encouraged us a few weeks ago. As we read, pay most careful attention to these words and ask yourself, what are the lies that I've believed about God that this truth heals? Maybe even ask yourself questions like, does my life really reflect my confession of faith to Jesus? Or for some, it might just be, is this Jesus a guy I can even follow? So as we read, I just encourage you, pay careful attention and consider Jesus. You ready? Um, it was going to be on the screen, but I forgot to show Rob how to do that, so forget it. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, or through the heavens, as some of you might say, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way 
in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All right. Now, wrapped up in that little section of Scripture, there's so much truth. Hey, how about that? Perfect timing. There's so much little truth, but I also recognize that the book of Hebrews is very Jewish. It's okay. We don't even need that anymore. You guys are seriously the best, but it was my bad. There's so much truth in this, but the book of Hebrews itself is very Jewish. It's literally called Hebrews. (laughs) And, And the author is writing to a culture who, for them, this kind of religious language, high priest and all of that, is very much their modern vernacular. For us, it's just not. And so at this moment, uh, Jesus is, is presented to us as our high priest. And uh, if you're like me, it's like, okay, yeah, cool. I grew up in Catholic school. I, I, I know what a priest is, I'm pretty sure, right? I have some Anglican friends. I'm, I'm down with the priests, yes. But a high priest... What the heck's the difference? I was thinking he might just be the guy who wears the high pointy hat. That might be the high priest. You know what I'm saying? But then, as we kind of really get into this, all jokes aside, we need to understand the imagery of the high priest because actually this little section is about to start like three or four chapters of of speaking to us that Jesus is our high priest. A lot of people actually might have struggled with that in the fact, and, I, and I'll, get, uh, I'll, g- I'll give a little bit more context to that in a moment, but my point being is this. I'm just going to start with the facts, and I know they're not the most exciting, but I believe when we know the facts and the context and we come together, this will be a moment of healing for a lot of us. Because I don't think I'm the only one when I would say that many of us have said yes to God out of fear. We're afraid of what would happen if we don't say yes to God. And we never really experience the joy of living in relationship with God. But it's just not the Christian life. When you walk with Jesus, you are meant to live at one, in unity with God. So, the author of Hebrews opens the section saying that Jesus is our high priest. Now, when God, is this too much information, are you with me? Okay, you're good, good. So when, when God created the world and gave order to it, there were three roles for humanity specifically that he gave us to basically embody what he is like to the rest of the world, okay? So those three were prophets, rulers, and priests. He gave the priests first to, uh, to, to um, sorry, I shouldn't start with priests because that's actually where I'm gonna land. He gave the prophets first to speak truth and justice into the nations. He gave rulers to embody God's perfect rule of the earth. That was the plan for them, at least. (laughs) And then he gave priests to embody God's presence in the temple to represent God to man and man to God. And then in the priestly role, there is a very, very special uh, um, position called the high priest. And the high priest, there's so much to be said. Joe is going to absolutely take us there next week, I think. We talk a little bit around the high priest stuff, right? Yeah, well, now you're obligated. And Joel will take us in, and we'll have some conversation around it. But for our purposes, tonight, only once a year, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And so that was the place behind the veil in the temple or the tabernacle where God's presence 
dwelt. And once a year, he would enter there and he would offer a sacrifice for him, himself, and for the people in his community. And then he would take the blood of a bull. And the blood, the, the image here is it represents life. I know it's kind of a weird uh, Jewish thing, but he takes the blood, which represents life, and he puts it on the mercy throne of God, God's throne, where essentially he covers our sin with the life of God so that mankind could live in unity and at one with God. So it's a beautiful setup that God has done here. He, he made no flaws in this. However, humans, surprise, surprise, begin to corrupt the system. The roles that humans were meant to embody God to the rest of the world, well, the people who occupied those roles tended to fail pretty miserably. The prophets, they start to influence nations with lies, with simply political agendas in place of truth. Rulers simply abuse the power that they're supposed to model. And then you have these priests. And in the sacred temple, yes, in the sacred space, sure, they, 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 they embody God to the people, but outside of the temple, they're literally having sex in the temple courtyards. They're stealing from the temple. They're building idols, and they're leading people into worshiping those idols. And do you know, I learned this this week. Don't know how I missed it. Told you, like I said, I'm not as smart as I think I am that uh, there are actually no good stories in the Old Testament that paint the Levitical priests in a good light. They full-on screw it up all the time. The very people who were meant to uh, provide atonement for the sins of people are those ones stealing, worshiping other gods, living different lives outside of the temple. And so the Hebrews very well may be asking the obvious question here. Great, he's our high priest, but why the heck should we trust him? Why would we trust this high priest? Because the moment Aaron experienced the sufferings of his people, he just built a calf for them to worship and led them into idol worship. Eli couldn't stand under the temptation of having to please his own family, so when his sons were having sex in the temple courtyard and they were stealing from the temple, he did nothing about it. So why? Why should we trust this high priest? And you know what's beautiful here is that the author, the pastor of Hebrews, doesn't reply with <laughs> like this pomp image of Jesus that's just unapproachable. He doesn't give us this like Hollywood production hot Jesus to look at. He says, yes, he's gone through the heavens. That's a very Jewish idea of the multiple layers of heaven. And yes, he sits lifted up with the Father, with all authority. But why can you trust him? Because he suffered and has been tempted in every way just like us. But he never sinned. That's why he says you can trust him. Now, it's easy for us in this moment to think like, yes, okay, but if he, if he didn't sin then how, like, he couldn't possibly understand the weight of the temptation we face. I'm sure he wasn't scrolling through Instagram like I was. It's very true, but I, ought, I would also point you to this image that C.S. Lewis gives us. And basically what he likens it to is that you can't understand the full weight of something until you've carried it without dropping it. So, for example, if you asked me what's the difference in weight between some 40-pound boulder and my Toyota Tacoma. 
I couldn't actually tell you the difference in weight because I've never been able to carry the two without dropping. All I know is that when I stand under either of them, I'm going to become ground beef. So when we, <laughs> when we face these heavy temptations in our lives, be it money, pride, attention, lust, we can't know the true weight of them until we've actually carried them without falling to them. Otherwise, it's just too heavy to even know how heavy it is. But Jesus, Jesus bore the weight of all of it. He was tempted in every way like you and me. He was well acquainted with intense suffering, and yet he carried the load of it without dropping it. And in him, there was no sin. So the author is encouraging the Hebrews. We have this high priest who is utterly and completely trustworthy. He knows exactly how much everything you're facing weighs, and yet he could carry it. And then he flips the invitation back to us with two simple encouragements. The first is this. He says, hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast to your confession of faith, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, an, with us in our weakness. The writer knows good and well that the Christian life can be very hard. In the face of temptation, suffering, corruption, popular opinion, uh, political correctness, whatever it be, it is sometimes, it just sounds easier to ditch our confession of faith. I know there has definitely been times where I'm like, I would probably prefer not to be known as a Christian right now. But then the, eye, the, the writer turns our eyes back to Jesus. He says, yeah, but your hope was never meant to be in institutions. It was never meant to be perfected through flawed church leaders or angry parents. Your hope has always, always been in Jesus. Your strength has always, always come from Jesus. So hold fast is his encouragement because he knows that the enemy, that culture, that political correctness are doing their best to shift your eyes from Jesus anywhere else but Jesus. Uh, Parker Palmer, he wrote this beautiful little book I highly recommend called Let Your Life Speak. And in his book, uh, he talks about how a large part of his life was just spent bouncing from job to job, idea to idea, failure to failure, because he was so consumed by critiquing the institution, so focused on telling people what was wrong with them, that he never actually got around to doing what God had gifted him to do. He never got to experience the joy of living fully human on mission with God. He missed a lot of valuable years pouring the gifts that God had given him for the world back into the world. And I, I believe that we all have to admit this has been us at one point or another in our lives, and, and we have the opportunity to repent of it right now. That many of us have spent more time finger-pointing than forgiving our enemies, and that is not congruent with our confession of faith. Many of us have spent more time condemning bosses, businesses, church leaders, pastors, politics, each other, 
than creating the change. So many of us have spent more time critiquing others, here's how you should actually do it, than just crucifying ourselves with Christ. How easy it is, honestly, I I totally resonate with this, how easy it is just to forget that it's no longer my will, my preferences, my plans, but yours, God, be done through me. Where we, Genesis, become people who are completely obedient to God and to his word. Now, I spent three years of my life after college, maybe two and a half, in a major, major, major deconstruction of my faith. I legitimately did not think in five years I could be a Christian anymore. I had at least reasoned myself out of Christianity, but my heart was just a little bit afraid to let go. I spent three years that were all about proving other people wrong, building up walls to protect myself, and constantly tearing down the things that other people had built up. But in this season of life right now, John 17 has really been building me back up and restoring so much of what I've, I've, I broke during those years. And so what I want to do again is I just want to read some scripture over us. These, these words right here are Jesus' prayers to his Father right before he's about to be crucified for the sin of the world. And this is what he prays. There's so much he could pray, but this is what he prays. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one. Father, just as in you, and you, just as I'm in you and you are in me, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought together in complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Did you catch that? That is beautiful. Jesus is saying here that our greatest tool for evangelism is not our clever arguments. It's not convincing somebody of a theological position. It's not proving that they are wrong and I'm right. He's saying that the unity of believers is our greatest tool for evangelism. That when we are unified, all believers are unified. Then that will show the world who God really is. Jesus is so hungry for unity in his believers because the world will know when our confession of faith, they will know God when our confession of faith is not simply a secret we hold in our back pocket. It's not a knife we hold to the throat of our brother or sister. But it is the glue of unity between us and the so-called them. And we just don't get a choice. It's about unity. And so what I want to do right now, actually, is I want to encourage you to take a look at your life and ask God to expose the areas in your life that don't reflect your confession of faith. I know this can be a little hard and awkward, and there's a lot of beauty that's going to come on the other side of this, but I actually want to pause for a minute. And maybe you can just 
<laughs> ask God to expose the ways where you've been saying one thing but living another life. Maybe places where you've caused disunity among believers and it does not reflect your confession of faith. Maybe you love Jesus, but if you're honest, you hate Christians. Maybe the opposite. Where, there, where is there disunity among us that God is inviting us in to help mend? So I actually just want to take a moment of really super awkward silence and just invite you, open your heart and just let the Lord reveal those places to you. I'm right there with you. The Lord has really been convicting me of this a lot lately. Um, there's a verse in Psalms about sowing disunity into a family. That's a place he's really been convicting me lately. But I know that this is worth it because I've seen God change my heart little by little. Even if we're just starting the journey, we're on the way to places I thought God honestly couldn't heal those places that I had created disunity. So I just want to continue to invite you to think on that as we leave here. But are you still with me? Yeah. You good? Okay. You ready for some beauty? Yeah. <laughs> Quiet people tonight. <laughs> Here's where it becomes so beautiful. Is that when we are in that moment of need when we are facing the temptation or when we've just fallen to sin, when it seems impossible to be obedient, when we uh, just can't understand how we could live in unity or we would rather finger point than forgive one another, the writer says this, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. That Jesus isn't just our mediator, between us and God, but he has actually blazed a trail into the throne room of God through the heavens. And we're promised that in there, in the presence of our completely holy God, we will be met with grace and mercy. We'll be met with grace and mercy. So I want to ask you again, Genesis, what is the lie that this truth heals? Come boldly to the throne of grace. I suspect that for pretty much all of us, as we're humans who have been so deeply affected by sin, that we've taken on the lie that we need to hide in our sin, that we need to hide in our shame. I can't let God or anyone else really know how messed up I am. And if I, if I did come to God, well, then he'd just be angry with me. He'd just scorn me, and he'd remind me what a failure I am. I guess I won't ask, but has anyone else felt that way? <laughs> this is the very lie that humans have believed since chapter 3 of Genesis, that Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and then instead of coming to him in honesty and repentance for him to restore them, they hide in their shame, and then quickly follows jealousy and murder, 
and injustice and misuse of power and genocide and war because sin, because hiding is a breeding ground for sin. Because hiding is a breeding ground for sin. The more we hide, the more we sin. The more we sin, the more we just separate ourselves from the mission that God has placed on our lives to be a part of restoring and redeeming the world. So it's not simply just some list of wrongs and the more you do them, the worse you are. I think that's honestly a bit selfish because it puts us at the center of the story, but the center of the story is God and his plan for redemption and restoration of the whole world. And so are we aligning ourselves? Are we becoming people who are way more obsessed with his ways, his love for the world than our own obsessions? Um, I have gotten caught up in my worst patterns of sin, most habitual patterns of sin, and hiding. I assume that for many of us, at least some of us in the room, porn is a big one. I struggle with it a lot earlier, and specifically through high school. And um, I would just say typically, sure there's exceptions, but typically this pattern does not happen when we're in the living room with our family or hanging out with our roommates. It's when we slip away to our room, often either when no one's home or everyone else is occupied, and we lock the door, we check it twice, and then we log on to the website, and then afterwards we, we clear the history. We hide that too, right? And then we just come out like, like nothing really ever happened or, or, or hopefully no one would suspect it. And if they would, then we actually literally go hide. We go on our walks, we do whatever. But God is so good. God is so good that he will not let us hide in our sin. Because he doesn't just feel sorry for us in our sin, he wants to help us in our sin. He doesn't just feel bad for you, he carries it for you. And no, I didn't write that, but it's really, really good. Because that is the very scandal of grace. Listen to these words of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace that you've been saved. A couple verses later, he says, it's, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not anything you've done for yourself. It's a gift from God, so that not by works, but so that no one can boast. I wish I had the words to just explain how much I want this for Genesis. I wish I even knew how to articulate my heart of compassion for my family and myself to know the grace of God that we would be a people who are constantly, boldly coming to the throne of grace in repentance, knowing that God is gentle and loving. He will meet us full of grace and mercy. Yes, of course he'll correct us. Of course he will, because he actually wants what's best for us, but correction doesn't come through telling someone what a piece of crap they are. <laughs> it comes through love. It comes through relationship. Genesis, the salvation, this grace is a completely free gift from God. 
We can no longer say like, look, God, look how good I am. Look at everything I've done to make you want me more, to gain your acceptance. Look at all the people I've helped, the amount I've read my Bible this week, how much more patient I've become with Haley, how, <laughs> I didn't think that was funny. Why did that get the laugh? <laughs> We no longer need to, re- to, to operate in this system of look, God, look how good I am, as if any of that really compares to the perfect holiness of God. And there is just so much more I want to talk about, about grace, but for now, yes, I'll answer your question. We should be falling on our face in gratitude to God. Me, God? Me. You know the thoughts in me, every anxious thought. You know my hidden sins. You know the way I have destroyed people who you love so much with my tongue. But you've made a way for me, for me to come confidently to your throne of grace. Wow. I mean, this isn't arrogance. This is just gratitude. That when you've surrendered your life to Jesus, there's no need to walk around with a heavy burden on your shoulders that never allows you to enjoy life or come near to, to, to God, to enjoy life with him. But this is grace. In your moment of sin, of shame, when you come to God, you're not coming for a divine spanking. You're not. You're coming for love and mercy and grace. You're coming to be built up and restored. You are receiving a grace that empowers you to change and be changed in the world that God has prepared for you. His grace is absolutely sufficient for you, Genesis. What's the lie that this truth heals? We no longer have to hide in our sin but we can come boldly to the throne of grace. So I actually have so much more (laughs) about Melchizedek and all that good stuff, but I just felt today that we should stop there at grace. I don't know how I'm going to land, to be honest, (laughs) other than I just want to create a space for us to worship God. I want to create a space for us to come confidently to his throne of grace. This isn't prophetic. I know just in a room this size, in human bodies like me, all of us are just hiding things deep down in our soul that we're just so afraid to put words to. We're just so afraid to let God shine his light on. My prayer for us today is just that God would open up our hearts to come boldly to his throne of grace. So, Caton, let's worship. Um, as we do, I just, I just have kind of a couple thoughts towards that. Um, for many of us, holding fast to our confession of faith has been exceptionally hard because of a lot of the injustice we've seen around us. Maybe a good comparison for some of us would be failed pastors, people we thought we could really trust, those abusive church experiences, all the hatred and the disunity 
that we've seen both in the church and outside of the church this past year, I just want to remind you, it's not Jesus. It is not Jesus. That suffering with no end in sight, the temptations that keep pressing you from every side, the lies, the distractions, the pressures, look to Jesus. He is your strength. He is the one who was meant to give you hope, not the corruption of the people we've seen fall around us. And so the invitation today, Genesis, as we heard last week, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If anything has resonated with you tonight, if there are just areas of your life that you know you've caused disunity in the body, you know it's been much easier to point fingers than to forgive your enemies. The beauty is, is that when you come to God, when you come to his throne of grace, he will meet you with grace and mercy, gentleness and love. It's who he is. So I, I just invite you tonight, Joe and Shelly Snyder are gonna be in the back. If any of our other leaders want to go pray as well, um, they're there tonight just for you to come and pray with them. Sometimes it's helpful just to have somebody to, to help you lift up those words of honesty to God, just to bless you and God in that moment. There's, there's an option for you. Maybe it is just a moment of sweet surrender right where you are. Just thanking God. Thank you, God. And then for some of us, the invitation is truly to come out of hiding, to come boldly to the throne of grace. I encourage you, for those of you who don't know Jesus, come boldly to the throne of grace tonight. You will be restored. We sang that song earlier. You set me back. Turn my morning to dancing, my sorrow to praise. So let's just do it. Why don't we stand together? Uh, Joe and Shelley and some others will be in the back to pray if you feel that. And tonight, your invitation is simply to come out of hiding. Come boldly to the throne of grace where he will restore you and he will show you love and honor. Amen. Let's do it.